As you're being seated, please uh, take a copy of God's Word. If you have one with you, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Be resuming our sporadic series in Colossians. When I was looking over the passage, I wanted to do the whole chapter. It's all really one, one piece, but there's so much packed in here, so we have to split it up. Uh, so today we're going to be focusing on Colossians 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can always look. Uh, you can pull, up, pull it up on your phone, or you can look in the bulletin as well and read along together. Hear now the Word of God written for us for God's people throughout all time. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account, of the wrath, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Thus far, the living and active word of God, let us take it to heart this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and be with us this morning, that you would inhabit our worship, that you would, that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. And Father, as we study your word, as we have opened it to read it, to hear what you have to say to us this morning, we ask that we would be renewed, that we would see the need for our Savior once again see the, the amazing work that he has done. 
And Father, clothe us anew in your righteousness. Make us new in Christ, we pray. And by your spirit this morning, teach us by your word how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two men were checking their shrimp traps in 1972 in the uh, country of Guam. And they were surprised to find a Japanese soldier hiding in the jungle, Sergeant Shiochi Yoki. Along the river, he was getting food. He was trying to get what he could to survive. And after an initial tussle with the soldier, the two men brought him back to civilization and they were able to communicate with him and figure out what he was doing out in the jungle. The authorities learned that Yokoi was hiding in the jungle of Guam for 28 years. You see, Sergeant Shioki Yokoi was a Japanese soldier in World War II who was stationed in Guam. And when the American soldiers came and captured Guam in 1944, he went into the jungle to hide. And even seven years later, when he found out that the war was over, he continued to hide in the jungle. He was scared. He had been taught when he was in training that being captured was even worse than death. And so he never dared to seek help. It's an incredible story. It's amazing. It's astonishing because it seems like, how could this happen? Wouldn't somebody who was out in the jungle for, for 28 years think to themselves, maybe the war is over. Maybe I'm not in danger anymore. Maybe I can go home. But he didn't. He stayed out in the jungle for 28 years, surviving on whatever he could find. And we asked those questions, wouldn't, wouldn't I think to myself, you know, maybe the war's over, maybe I can go home, maybe there's peace. And yet, we see in our passage today that Scripture asks us those questions. Why are you continuing to act as if the war is not won? Why do you continue to act as a slave, as a captive to sin. Paul uses uh, this letter uh, writing to the Colossian church because they're stuck, they're, they're continuing in their ways, and we get to enter into that conversation because the conversation is not just for the Colossian church, it's for us as well this morning. Why do we continue acting like we are living under the condemnation of death? Why do we pursue the same values as the world around us if we've been raised with Christ? There's a deeply ingrained belief in all of our hearts that what is real, what God has accomplished, can't truly be real, can it? So Paul, as he writes to the Colossians and us, he reminds us of the realities of God. He wants us to hear the good news again, that the war is won. 
Not only are we no longer prisoners, but we are now also sons and daughters of the king. So the theme of this passage this morning is that we are made new in Christ. And having risen with him in his resurrection, we must now put off the old man, the old ways of life, and must put on the new man with the garments of love, which set us free from the tyranny of death for an abundant and everlasting life. We'll be looking at this theme in three sections this morning, three sections that flow naturally from the text. First, the God context. Second, the garments of death. And third, wearing the new garments of love. So let's dig into the text this morning. Point one, the God context, verses one through four. Paul has been reminding the Colossians about the foundation of the gospel. Chapters one and two, there's, it's full of the gospel. He does this in all of his letters. And now as we get, uh, get to the part of the letter where Paul commands, where he instructs the imperatives of Paul's letters, he always wraps the imperatives or the instructions in the gospel. He always wraps it on one side and the other side and what God has done for us. And this isn't just a formula that makes sense, but it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Well, when is the last time you woke up, went into the bathroom, looked in the mirror and said, you are dead. You are dead. And yet your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or when is the last time you sat in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, not on Sunday, unfortunately, and just contemplated, meditated on the fact that you have indeed been raised with Christ? I'm sure you've thought about those realities, but have you thought about them? Have you meditated upon them in everyday life while you're going about your daily activities? It's difficult to bring those things into focus. And that's why Paul has to lovingly remind us, remind the Colossians what God has done. This is the God context. I have to admit, I borrowed that term from another pastor. I was trying to rephrase it in my mind, trying to think of something, uh, a different way that I could say it, but it's just so succinct. And so it just creates that imagery in your mind, the God context. We have many contexts in our lives. We live in context, contexts like family, work, economic status, citizenship, the schedule of daily life. All of these contexts say something about us, give our life meaning. They are the contexts that guide our lives. But the most important context is the one that we may often overlook. It's the God context. It's the realities of what God has done, is doing, and will do for you. While each other context gives you important information on who you are, what you are to do, the God context is the most important. To give you a few examples of the God context throughout Scripture, here are some from throughout uh, the New Testament. It is finished. 
on 19. But God, Romans 5 and Ephesians 2, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are, 1 John 1. And here in Colossians 3, you have been raised with Christ. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. What does that mean? That sounds strange, and it's, it's all out of order. What do you mean we've been raised, you are dead, you are alive? What does this all mean? What do you mean, Paul? Paul is describing here something that is very important to the Christian faith, and that broad idea, the, the big picture that he's drawing here is the idea of union with Christ. Union with Christ has many facets, many benefits. But one of the main implications is that whatever Jesus has accomplished is given to you in God's point of view. Whatever Jesus has accomplished is given to you in God's point of view. Jesus died for your sins, and so God pronounces that your sins have been paid for. Jesus rose from the dead, so death no longer is your enemy. And Jesus lives right now in heaven. And so your life is hidden. It's kept safe with him. And when Jesus comes again in glory, your life will be revealed to be just as glorious as his. This changes everything. In this context, we no longer have to worry about the cares of this earth. But as Paul says, we must set our minds, we must fix our gaze on the things that are above. The God context must be our main focus in life. And I wish it were just as easy as flipping a switch. If we could control our minds like a train on a track, we could just flip a switch and it changes track, that would be amazing. But it's a battle. It takes work. It takes that conscious decision, that setting your mind, that resolution to keep ourselves focused. It's a high calling and it's a huge demand. We don't naturally want to set our minds on the things above. We more naturally want to escape or to relax or to run away from these truths, even though we've tasted their reality, even though we know the sweetness of God's extravagant love. Author Emily Dickinson wrote, the heart wants what it wants, or else it doesn't care. So why should we care? How do we care? How do we turn our hearts and fix our minds upon God's mercy-filled realities? Well, the solution is really two-sided. God is not done with you yet. That's, that's the first side of that equation. God isn't done with you yet. He is going to continue his work. Just as we saw in the assurance of pardon today, God will put his spirit in us, and we will live. He's promised to continue the work in your heart. On the other hand, as God works in our hearts and as he teaches us, we begin to see that pursuing the old self always ends in pain and misery, and so our hearts start to turn, we start to turn, 
we start to choose to run after God. If you can see a dead end, it's a lot harder to go down that road. It's not impossible, but it's harder. So we've seen the God context, the, the things that are above which Paul calls us to fix our, eye, our eyes and our minds on. So let's look at those dead ends. Let's clearly see the destruction that comes as Paul continues on in the next section. Let's look at the garments of death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, is what Paul says. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. More words from uh, 17th century. Uh, this one's from 17th century Puritan John Owen. You may be familiar with you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. In the same way, Paul commands us to put to death what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul even tells us the consequences. He shows us the dead end of why these things are disastrous. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Plain and simple. If you've ever been driving down the road and suddenly you fly by a cop car, and you just know that he is going to be behind you in a few minutes and you're going to be sitting on the side of the road. That's the kind of feeling that you should feel from this phrase. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And yet, there's even more fear. There should also be a holy and a terrible fear because God is holy. There's no hope with this that Maybe he'll let me off if I can make a good excuse. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, he didn't see me. God sees all. He, he is holy. His wrath is perfect. His justice is complete. And all of these negative characteristics that Paul describes here are a direct attack on the purity and the nature of God. Look again at this list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these things, while they may affect our relationships with others, they're primarily sins against this holy God. Take sexual immorality. That, that phrase, is, that's a countercultural phrase, sexual immorality. With our current mantra of sex and sexual identity being whatever you want it to be, how could you assign any morality to this issue? From sinful man's perspective, it's not so much what is right or wrong, but what can you get away with? But from a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview, we clearly see the depths of depravity that come through this sin. We've seen the kind of ruin that follows it. But even for us Christians, sometimes we wonder just what is it about sexual purity that is so important to God? Why does scripture speak so many times on this issue? The answer that scripture gives us is that this relationship, this 
this uh, thing that God has given us is a direct representation of God's relationship with us. God calls this intimacy between a husband and a wife a picture of his relationship with his people. God is the author of sexual intimacy, and he says that he will never leave you or forsake you. God is faithful. He will never abandon you. He will never get tired of you. He will never go looking for something else to fulfill his affection. He is faithful to you. And when we are pure and holy in our thoughts and our actions, God says that we display to the world what kind of love that he has for us. But when we destroy that, when we follow the sinful desires, the lust, abusive power, and temptation to use others, we nuke that beautiful picture of God's love for us. We just obliterate its beauty and its power. Oh, that we would have a proper sense for the sacredness of intimacy, not just in our world, but in our own hearts. Maybe one of the reasons why it's so hard to believe sometimes that God could love us so dearly is that we've forgotten what sexual purity looks like. Oh, and how much damage it's done to us and our children. It seems nearly impossible to raise children these days without the collateral damage of sexual immorality. So therefore, Christians, let us put to death in our own hearts sexual immorality. Let us be the example of God's pure love for us. And if we feel that shame of our own struggle, remember, Christian, God has won the war. We are no longer enemies of God. We are his sons and daughters. There is no shame at the foot of the cross. God has paid for our sin. God has brought us into his presence to cleanse us, for us to be fully known, fully forgiven, and fully loved. Paul continues with these others, impurity, passion, evil, desire. Like sexual immorality, all of these characteristics are an affront to God's nature. Impurity is the pursuit of the infection of sin. Passion is the emotional abandon towards gratifying the flesh. An evil desire is the unfulfillable hunger for rebellion against God. It may be tempting to dismiss these things, to, to say that we don't really struggle with them. But they also have more subtle manifestations Impurity may be holding back that one area in your life that you don't want God to touch. Passion may be working extra hard, but not, not to give the glory to God, but to increase your own stature or power. Evil desire may be wanting to hold a grudge rather than forgiving. But the more you give in, the more you practice these things, the more that sin demands. 
The last characteristic there that Paul talks about is covetousness. It makes sense why he calls covetousness idolatry. To covet is to call God a liar. To say, God hasn't given me what is good or what I need. If I, I know better than God as to what I need, then I must be better than God. I've become my own idol. These are the character traits here of the enemies of God. With every act, they blaspheme the name of God. They destroy what God has made. And they run headlong into the wrath that awaits them. Christians, praise God that you are in Christ. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ. That is a reality that is true of us this morning. And yet, while Paul assures us that we have died to sin in Christ, he calls us to continue to put to death that which is earthly in us. Indeed, if we were to truly understand the cost of our continued sin, wouldn't we daily cry out like Isaiah, woe is me. Paul says in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Paul uses this imagery of taking something off, of putting something away, like garments, like dirty rags that are to be replaced with good and clean clothes, as we'll see later in verses 10 and 12. Paul wants us to put away the characteristics of God's enemies and the destruction that comes with it. And notice how the second list there Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another is very similar to the first list, but now the sin is much more focused on those around us, on the relationships around us. Not only does our sin destroy our relationship with God, but it also destroys our relationships with others. And these sins are also the kind of sins that we like to excuse or gloss over. Isn't it easy to excuse anger? Because usually something is wrong or somebody else is wrong. Somebody else is being a horrible person and so I am justified in my anger because they're obviously in the wrong. I'm just acting in accordance with their wrong. Isn't that how we feel? That sense of anger arises? But no, God doesn't allow it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. When we talk, do we speak the words of grace or words of hate? Do you bless God on Sunday and curse your fellow man on Wednesday? James says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Do we therefore speak the truth in love or do we deceive one another? Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Christian, if we are not guarding our behavior, if we are not guarding ourselves against these things, it's like lobbing grenades into the relationships in our lives. Again, Paul urges us to put these things to death. We cannot continue in the ways of sinful flesh, but must put them aside like filthy garments. Because either they will be garments of death 
which will destroy you, or you will put them to death and put on the new self. So we've seen the God context, the realities of who we are in Christ. And now we've seen the dangers of the garments of death. And the third point this morning is the hope, the joy. The third point this morning is wearing love. Uh, Fashion is not my thing. Just want to make that clear. Uh, But having watched enough cheesy rom-coms, I know the first thing that you have to ask somebody at a fancy event, you know, when you're walking down the red carpet, first question is, who are you wearing? Right? It's not, what are you wearing? That's obvious most of the time. (laughs) Who are you wearing? The question uh, isn't just about how much the, the design costs. I mean, it's probably about that, or how exclusive that design is. But at the core, the question gets to who created this masterpiece of design? Who are you wearing? What are you wearing? Paul tells us in verse 10 that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You are wearing new garments, one that just ones that just keep on getting better and better, reflecting more of Jesus' character as you grow in them. You are wearing love. The one who showed us what love truly is. The one who gave his life to save his enemies. You are clothed in Jesus' character. If you're not a Christian, You've heard what Paul said about the wrath of God that is coming. You know the pain of this broken world. Even if you have all of the things that this world values, just look at those who do. They're still miserable. Even if you have all of these things, it's not enough. But sin doesn't have to have the last word. Matt says that often when we do the confession of Sin and the assurance of pardon. Sin doesn't have the last word. God doesn't just leave us to rot in our misery and our sin. Punishment and fear, though powerful deterrence, will never change the affections of the heart. Instead, they must be replaced by something better. And that's what we see here. God has offered something that we could never attain. Purity and peace, and great value. Notice how Paul continues. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We all come from different backgrounds. We may come here this this morning or any given Sunday feel like we belong, we may come feeling like we don't belong. Sometimes we feel like we don't measure up to those around us. There are those in God's church who have had years and years of victories, of telling God's stories, what God has done in their lives. We feel sometimes like we don't measure up. 
Paul says, God says, that's not so. You are in Christ. Christ is in you, and he has given you everything. We all stand equal, not with empty hands, but hands now filled with Jesus' resume, Jesus' character. That's good news. That is the good news. Believe in Jesus and cry out to him to save you, and he gives you everything. He gives you himself. And that's the new affection. If we want to turn our hearts, if we feel that need to turn our hearts to God, that is the new affection that will turn our hearts. That's what's powerful enough to tune our hearts to what God is doing. Paul continues in verses 12 through 17. Uh, and somewhat a reverse of verses 5 through 9. First, he highlights the new character towards one another. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. These ought to be the foundations of our relationships with one another. These are the godly character traits that display God working in our lives. Like the struggle of sin against others, we like to excuse our shortcomings in doing what is good. I'm a pretty patient person, I like to think. But when that one thing or that one person drives me a little bit crazy, I excuse it. I say, eh, I'll, I'll do better next time. Brothers and sisters, let us not be discouraged. Let us not excuse our self when we fall short, but let us look to Jesus who knows our weakness. He knows our temptation and yet without sin. He doesn't just give us commands to discourage us, to make us feel low, but he gives us commands to make us more like him. His desire is for our good. We all know that justification is by grace alone, but sanctification is only by his grace too. Sometimes we forget that. C.S. Lewis commented on God's commands in scripture, on the high goal of attaining to the holiness of God, and he wrote these words to encourage us. He says, put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and to try to carry out as a man may read what Pluto or Marx, Plato, not Pluto, Plato or, <laughs> that's something else entirely. <laughs> as a man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and replacing it with the kind of self that he has. Finally, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which, 
in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. We are enabled by God to put on these things. They are the gifts that we must earnestly practice as one who practices learning a new skill. But they are gifts nonetheless. And compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness are only possible and true when we first put on love. When we put on that character of our Savior. Paul says in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. While all of these things are, again, outward focused to those around us, love is first and primarily focused on our relationship to God. It is the reflex of the soul that is made new. It is the core of the new self. It's the God context of the new life. We love because he first loved us. Don't miss verse 12, where he says, you are God's chosen, holy to God, his beloved. When we love God, we are to grow in a relationship with him. Paul says in verses 15 to 17 that you must let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What do all of these things sound like? Doesn't it sound like what we do here each Sunday? Our lives filled with love are to become a practice of worship. We are called to peace, unity, thanksgiving, growing, singing, worshiping our God. We are to worship God every moment of every day. Yes, this is a high calling but it's a good calling. It's a gift from the one who has given us everything. Christian, remember what God has done for you. Put off your old self with its garments of death and put on love. And with love, all of the blessings and worship that turn your heart and grow your desire to know and be known by your God. This is your calling. This is your hope. This is your blessed and glorious life. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, fix our gaze, fix our minds upon the things that are above. Help us to look forward to that day when we will appear with our Savior, with our Christ, with Jesus in glory. Help us to live out of that context, out of that understanding, knowing all that you have done for us and all that you will do for us. Keep our eyes upon you, O Lord, we ask, and renew us day by day in love and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.